Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're going to talk about loyalty. I thought this was an important topic to talk about because ostensibly loyalty is a positive quality. I mean, it's usually talked about in that lens, but I think under any kind of scrutiny, loyalty is dangerous. Like, and I almost would say that people are too loyal, not just other people, but to like objects and to brands and to things that are damaging to them, their jobs even. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that if we're being honest, loyalty can only exist to people and not to institutions and not to ideas or thing or brands. I think loyalty is specific to a kind of relationality that happens between people. And then I think it's healthiest when it's reciprocal. And the reciprocity is based on the amount of trust that two people have in one another and the ability that they have to persevere for their relationality, to have each other's back, to show up when other people need it emotionally or socially or physically. And so I I agree with you 100% that I think that loyalty is a manifestation of attachment to things that are, are often negative. But I think that in its best form, loyalty is really about the way that people, you know, relate to one another through trust and honesty. The only way that loyalty works is kind of at odds with how people perceive loyalty. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of it's perceived as just like blind adoration and commitment. But I think loyalty only works if you are constantly checking in and constantly asking questions and constantly reevaluating because it does require, I think the proper kinds of loyalty require a check-in. And I mean, with friendship, I think there's a kind of loyalty where a friendship has been generative for a long time. And maybe your your friend goes through a rough patch, but you remain loyal to them because, because presumably that friendship will be generative in the future. Um, So there is a kind of loyalty where if you check in at one point, you'll be like, well, this isn't working for me. Mm -hmm. But because you've had this generative relationship in the past, you can continue uh, to be loyal. Yeah, I completely agree with that, that loyalty is about calibration and recalibration. I like the idea of checking in to frame and reframe and to negotiate and renegotiate boundaries and desires in any kind of relationship, whether it's friendship or otherwise. I think that when loyalty turns toxic, it does so around notions of sacrifice, which obviously on this podcast I've ranted at at length. You know, I just, I think sacrifice is about self-mutilation and about the desire to mutilate others as uh, as some sort of fealty, as a a way of demonstrating loyalty. Like, I'm so loyal to you, watch me psychically mutilate, you know, my desires and you know, change the way that I behave and think and what I want so that they fit what you want me to want. I think that is, that's super toxic. And so sacrifice, especially in an interpersonal context, I think is dangerous. I guess probably even more so in some ways when the sacrifice is attached to like 
nation or nationalism or patriotism or national figures or ideology. I think, I think sacrifice is best when it is in concert with others for the good of, but it is most toxic when it is, you know, about the destruction of the self or the destruction of others for some sort of proclaimed higher good. I think it's interesting to evaluate that um, in kind of smaller groups. Like I'm thinking of fraternities and hazing and how hazing Mm. and allowing yourself to be hazed is kind of a sacrifice that ultimately leads to fraternity supposedly. But then obviously you, it's a kind of loyalty where you hide the fact that there's abuse and <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Lord of the Flies is not sure. is a cautionary tale. I'm thinking of like military <laughs> boot camps mm-hmm. where you undergo um, a physical duress um, and then become loyal to the Marines because you went through that together. But that's not necessarily it's not necessarily okay. Yeah, that's not loyalty. That's trauma bonding. Yeah. <laughs> That is not loyalty. <laughs> that is trauma. I feel like, though, under capitalism and especially the neoliberal late capitalism that we're living under now, with all of its racism and xenophobia and just general hate culture, that trauma bonding is a primary way that people measure loyalty. That seems very problematic to me. But I think it overdetermines the way that people perceive their proximity to others, especially at work, but definitely in family units. I mean, I think it's the reason that people overstay in relationships. They overstay, you know, in relationships with their parents. When their parents are abusive, they overstay abusive marriages or marriages of neglect. I think people overstay relationships um, that are damaging and negative attachments because of a misplaced idea of what loyalty is. And I feel like for me, I have a lot of empathy for that because there's so few models of like healthy relationality or healthy loyalty or productive. And I don't mean that in the capitalist sense. I mean that in the emotional sense, like productive ways that people are relating. And so they substitute loyalty and longevity for healthy, right, exchanges of care. And so when you were talking about fraternities, I feel like that's a hun- that's 100% about how fraternities build their organizational structure around hazing and abuse and sort of this like low-level psychological torture to be, you know, hyper-productive capitalist white people. And that becomes a problem because the loyalty is a substitute for healthy relations. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of an easy way out. Like if you use abuse to kind of manipulate people's human nature and tendency to, to want to attach. And um, there's no productive relationship if there's not a conversation. Like, how would loyalty stand up if you really asked someone how they felt about something and there was no fear of repercussion in that question? Mm-hmm. I think loyalty as it's perceived would not hold up. And I, I've been thinking about it as somebody who straddles activism and scholarship, right? Because I moved through a bunch of different worlds. And I think that for me, I work with a bunch of people that I suspect would not necessarily choose me as a friend, but who do loyalty with me because, because we share an ethics and a commitment to 
principles of justice that include everybody. So even if we're not like the closest of buddies, we are still always going to be predictably available to do justice work together because the ethics are very clearly what drives right our motives. And so I think it, it maybe it's useful in thinking about motivation as a way of understanding where loyalty holds up and where it does crack under scrutiny. Because I think if the motivation is something like justice, right, where the parameters of that relationality are clear to all the parties and they're consenting to do that kind of work together, then it seems more pro productive and positive as a relationality that can create a different kind of circumstances that build healthier communities. But if there is no shared ethic right then i don't then it's not loyalty then it, then it's the you know I, then it's just fealty and it's obedience and it's you know it's power and domination it's not so much reciprocal care that is driving that kind of relationality that reads more to me like collaboration yes than it does loyalty yes because there's some kind of like implied power dynamic with loyalty and i don't think that is the appropriate way to frame justice. Or... I don't think that there has to be a power relationship with loyalty. I think it, it exists best when it's absence of power or where the power is shared in the, in a collaborative way. That makes total sense to me. That the sh open, transparent sharing of information, transparency about motive and desire, communication that goes both ways, critique that goes both ways, right? The sharing of joy goes both ways. When those pathways are open, then I think loyalty has the potential to be a very pr productive thing. But once you start shutting down one side or the other of those, then I think you get a bunch of resentment that festers, and then, then people rationalize overstaying in any kind of relationship, a job or a marriage or whatever, as a way of justifying to themselves right what decisions they've made to get to that point yeah but i do think collaboration then is a cornerstone of that type of reciprocal loyalty because you do have to engage with disagreement and you have to engage with um differences of opinion and also you, there's like you have to be reliable yeah so that begs the question then who deserves loyalty Right. And I think that the people who deserve loyalty, at least for me, are the ones who can provide and receive critique, who can provide and receive joy and care, who can provide and receive open communication, who can concretely articulate their desires. Right. Who can self-assess honestly, who are reliable and show up and can accept other people when they show up. I mean, those are a constellation, I think, of qualities that for me are the ones that I want to see when I do loyalty. And I do all kinds of work that necessitates it, like social work <laughs> of any kind really does necessitate those skills being, you know, shared between and among groups of people. I was also, we were talking earlier about unions, right? And I think unions at their best, at their absolute best, try to cultivate a sense of shared ethic and shared information and goal setting. And I think when unions fail, it's because they collapse into a loyalty model that over uh, estimates longevity, <laughs> right? Where you get the same people who are stagnant and the ideas are stagnant and the power is stagnant. And there's no 
fresh influx of ideas or critique or anybody who has the power or seniority to really critique the institutions. And so in that way, unions are like any other kind of institutional space, right, that they collapse into the values of the people that are adherents inside of them that, that build the institutional power. But I think that at their best, unions can cultivate a sense of shared collaborative spirit and ethic that can drive change from outside of the government. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing um, that happens is when uh, critique does take place or when disagreement does take place, it's perceived as disloyalty. Yes. And um, I think that's, that's a problem. I mean, in workplaces that I've been in, that's been a problem. I mean, I'm a very open and honest person and I speak with a lot of candor in the workplace, especially about things that I think can be improved. I think it's often interpreted as difficult behavior. Um, and I know, like you were saying, you have to have people in the structure of power and seniority to make the critiques in. It, it is difficult if I'm uh, speaking out of place about something that I think needs to be improved, but that's not disloyalty. And I, I think uh, in a lot, of, a lot of times organizations and managers, they prefer loyalty over honesty. I feel like you're um, like you're shirking improvement if um, you're proud of how loyal your employees or your collaborators are. But also, here's the thing about that dynamic. That dynamic emerges when critique is perceived as complaint. And so when complaints happen, they are perceived in ways that are racialized and are gendered. And then the response is to cut off any kind of discourse that's reciprocal because the person who has articulated the critique is then just dismissed as a complainer. And this happens to people who are who are trying to change cultures because of, of their reporting sexual harassment. It is 100% the case that it happens when people have complaints of racism and structural white supremacy. It is, it is 100% the case that in the workplace, actual legitimate structural critique is reframed as a complaint, as a way of marginalizing the person who is articulating the critique. And that 100% is about power and is not about loyalty, and I agree I mean, I just cannot agree more that they prefer loyalty at all costs because they cannot hear any kind of critique. And they also have often do not have any vested interest in any kind of transformational change that benefits particularly the workers. Yeah, I think um, a lack of complaining is like literally built into people's jobs that they just need to shut up and do their job. I've been reading about the Amazon warehouses and, you know, asking for a break is considered a strike against you. Like, you can literally lose your job for asking for a break. And you lose points. And there's it, there's this entire system where you're, like, the only way to do your job well is to shut up and not complain. And so that, like, how can you be loyal to that? How can you be loyal to any kind of organization? I mean, precarity, like, you have to, uh, out of economic necessity, like, have that kind of job. And a lot of people do. But... That doesn't make you loyal. No, and in fact, you know, obviously I'm on team disloyal to the machine, <laughs> right? Sure. So I'm like, you know, team let loose the animals on the plantation and team poison the cornfields. And, you know, I'm about the foot dragging and the micro resistance as a way of managing, 
you know, the precarity of capitalism when you're forced into situations that demand institutional loyalty but provide no institutional support. So I think that that's real. And I, but I also think, you know, in the case of Amazon, the fact that they paid zero taxes this year is just like a fucking abomination. And that demonstrates zero loyalty to the social whole or to the social good and is a fucking stain on this country to allow corporations like that to get so big that they don't have to think about social responsibility at all. So, you know, for me, I feel like that kind of structure, you know, is a problem. And even at least at least the robber barons had to build museums and libraries and shit. Right. We have to see their sad names all over the country, but at least there was social pressure on them to divest their wealth into social good. That doesn't even exist anymore in any real capacity. Right. Where there is a social demand that that kind of massive wealth at the top needs to be put back into communities in, in productive ways. There's no sense of it. I mean, part of it, I think, is just mystification of power, right? I think loyalty fundamentally mystifies power. So it, it, Walmart works the same way. So it's like, oh, if you put in your 20 years, you're going to get some sort of magical thing that the company's going to shit out at the end. It's going to make your all of your shit labor there worth it. I mean, no, they're not. <laughs> you don't have a pension, so that those days are over. And your 401k is basically invested into stocks that are traded on speculation to benefit the top 1% anyway. But I think that the way that money works is mystified. I think the way that power works is mystified. I think the way that corporations manage their own monies and assets is mystified. And so instead, you just have this sort of nativist sentiment that gets whipped up about the corporation and belonging to the corporation instead of belonging to your community. And so at that point, the displacement of the relationality from the community to the corporation or in intimate relationships from the individual into the family, I think is a problem <laughs> because then you fundamentally cannot see how you're being exploited by your husband or your wife or your mother or your father or your, you know, part intimate partner or your boss or the corporate overlord who's sucking you dry. So I think that loyalty becomes a substitute um, for the longing for relationality that people cannot find in their communities because they're working so many hours a day. So instead of going to the farmer's market and seeing everybody in town and buying locally, they are working 60 hours a week for the co corporate overlords who are just sucking them dry. Or if you do see it, though, you don't have any options because the yeah. economic... <laughs> so many jobs. <laughs> right. That economic opportunity is poor. So... It's poor, but it's it's not just that it's poor. It's that the wages suck. It's that there is no class mobility right now, and everybody is drowning in debt. I mean, it is all of those things together. And so in some ways, I almost feel like in rhetoric, we talk about sunk cost fallacy, right? Like we've already put so much funds to this. We have to be loyal to this idea because we've already sunk so much of our resources into it, whether it's the war in Vietnam or like America as a national ideal. You know, there's this idea that if you put so much time and so much effort and so much money into a thing, you have to be loyal to it forever or you'll have failed. I'm like, no, cut your losses. <laughs> you know, at the point mm -hmm. where your dissatisfaction is so great and the harm to you is so great, we have got to find other ways to manage labor in a way that, that not just, it just distri distributes the risk as well as the reward. 
And that seems very healthy to me. I would be I would be happy to be loyal <laughs> when there's a reciprocity of risk and reward. But instead, the worker bears all of the risk and none of the reward. And that is where the exploitation happens. And it also happens that way in relationships that are imbalanced and unequal around power. And that's not necessarily men over women or whatever, but it, it but when relationships are imbalanced, then you have exploitation and abuse. And that's not ideal. It's ridiculous to be loyal to those things if we can build something else and think differently about relations. I mean, this is part of what capitalism uh, and economics get so wrong, is that loyalty is like a thing that happens with people. And there's no way to model that or to adequately control for that. <laughs> and it does disrupt the market yeah. in ways that do not favor most people. Well, you know, higher ed works a little differently because it's not exactly a market and the workers see none of the profits. But, you know, the higher ed is built on patronage. So, you know, it's a model where certain people become in charge of journals or book series or programs and they matriculate out their favorite students. And so those students have loyalty to the person who made their career because it was literally one person who gave them their publication, the first publication or their most important award or whatever. And so then people become loyal to folks based on perceived advantages that are fundamentally not ethical. And so they can't then disentangle themselves because they have allowed themselves to be sucked into this, this patronage, you know, model where there is no opportunity to critique the institutions or the actors who are creating patronage. And there's no room to dissent about it or to reformulate it because everybody's so deeply invested in the person or the personality or the reputation um, they can't navigate the reputational harm. And that is also a problem of loyalty. You cannot be loyal to things that cannot bear critique. That is fundamentally unethical. It's, it strikes me as completely bad shit to do that. To let oneself be so snowed under, to take, take on the precarity so intrinsically inside the self that one is willing to forego the ability to critique to manage their fear of failure. That is just a bad trade. I mean, the thing about it is that if you are going to be the person who is doing the critiquing in a workplace of any kind, and you know you're going to be labeled as the complainer as a way of undermining the ability to perform critique, the sad fact is that you have to be right 100% and you have to be able to build a consensus around it before the complaint is launched. Otherwise, there's just no way whatsoever for any kind of critique to make its way and circulate inside of a workplace. And that requires a lot of capital, emotional capital, social capital, relational capital that I don't know, is again mystified inside of workplaces. And the same thing happens in families. I mean, people don't leave abusive family situations because they don't have often the support on the outside to manage in this hyper-competitive, you know, kind of capitalist space that the U.S. has become. And so it's like, do you leave the familiar abuse of what you know for a, being shunned and being alone out on the outside? For a lot of people, that's a hard thing to navigate and to think about. And there's a lot of anxiety about you know, abandoning the security of the machine. It's almost like stock, you know, Stockholm Syndrome. And I don't know what other options exist. I mean, yes, you do. We do it all the time. We live in this weird little funky town. We've got relationships with all the people, right? And so, you know, you could call on these people. 
And they would, and a bunch of them would drop stuff, even ones that you don't have loyalty to would drop stuff to help you if you needed it. And you knew that if you were floating and you, and you needed some cash money, you could pop into the bars and the restaurants around town and people would feed you and they would give you drinks and, and they would help you move. And even these weirdos that in this town that we both love slash, you know, find sometimes a little too small, they're going to show up. And that it's much easier, I think, in small towns where you see everybody at the grocery store and you see everybody at the fireworks extravaganza and you see everybody at First Thursday. It's easier to at least have an easy intimacy where you can count on people for little things to fill in the gaps than it is in larger cities when everybody's so alienated by the crush of humans and by long hours that they make no relationships with other people. So in some ways, I feel like it's much easier for us in the South and in a small town, a small college town, to think about alternative modes of relationality than it is for people who live in giant cities or mega cities, where the relationality is ground down just by the sheer presence of some of the human. There is also like uh, a better provision of resources in bigger cities, better libraries and better social services for the most part. So if you don't have that kind of network, you can rely on better organizations, structural organizations. You also have opportunities to job hop, which you do not have in small towns, right? So that's that's actually, I think, probably the more compelling, you know, structural difference in large cities is that you have the opportunity to critique and then bounce somewhere else. I mean, as an academic, I do not have the opportunity to just, like, bounce job hop. Job hop. Right. The ability <laughs> to be disloyal, if that works better for you, is yes a, a, ta- a kind of power. Mm-hmm. Agree 100%. And so, you know, I just, I think that when we think about loyalty, especially now, we're recording this episode right after July 4th, and and I I just saw some of the images of the the military shenanigans on the National Mall. And, um, you know, I just, the people who demand loyalty are always the most insecure and probably should not receive loyalty. If you have to ask for it, you probably do not deserve it. Right, because it's non-consensual and it's about the the hi- hierarchical push for power from the top to the bottom, rather than uh, a negotiation of power between equals. And so, you know, as we watch sort of this Trump administration implode somewhat around the notion of loyalty, I think it's probably worth investigating our own relationships insofar as we have some control and agency over them about who we are loyal to and who we are not loyal to and why. I mean, the turnover in his administration alone indicates that Trump isn't loyal (laughs) at all, you know, and it does, it does seem that he demands that of other people. I mean, listen, his entire model is extractive. And so anybody whose model is extracting as much as they can from a person and then punting them to replace with someone else, that is not a model for democracy or democratic practice. But it's also just completely lacking of any ethic at all whatsoever. So the fact that people cheer that on, the people who cheer that on seem to me to be more than a basket of deplorables. Right. They seem like they're clearly bad faith actors who see that model of power as something that they wish that they could attain or that they want to be a permanent feature and not a bug of executive power. And that is fundamentally a preference for abuse. 
And it does not surprise me that it exists to such a degree in the U.S. today. I think it's always been here. It's just the, you know, the genie's out of the bottle a little bit. But I think it is about, it is the way that a lot of people conceive relationality is that they, if they can't dominate, they want to see somebody else doing it on their behalf. And whether that's in a family unit or at a workplace or, you know, in, in the government, I think it's a model for really destructive social practices. Yeah. I was reading the New York Times investigation of his inauguration and how much money was spent on all of the dinners and events surrounding his inauguration and just like the apparent um, expectation of like political favors. Like it's just like, cronyism on display <laughs> and like in given how grandiose his inauguration was and the uh, kind of money that people were spending to be a part of it and that there was kind of an expectation tied to that expenditure like you're buying influence yes i mean th- listen all of the presidential inaugurations function that way like you're paying for access to the president the thing that is distinctly different about Trump, though, is that he ran as a business and who could, you know, make the deal, the art of the deal, right? And so there's no thin veneer of legitimacy about it. It's that the cronyism and nepotism are out in the public, and it was an expectation of his voters that he would deliver on that kind of model of relationality, where, you know, the constitutional legal scholar, you know, Obama did not have so much to offer that way. Mm -hmm. Um, given his age and given his family background, and he he doesn't come from robber barons, it turns out. So I think that I think that in some ways, I know we're sort of veering off of the interpersonal into the political, but I feel like this next next electoral cycle, this twenty twenty electoral cycle, is fundamentally a referendum on <laughs> this version of power on nepotism and cronyism and fascism and, you know, this this devotion to, quote-unquote, the market. It's been interesting, too. You're an economist, so I'm sure you've been watching the bond market numbers this last week, right? So the, and the stock market analysts are just like, hey, the crash is coming. It's coming, coming, coming. It'll be very interesting to see how people feel about loyalty to Trump when the economy craters like it did at the end of the Bush administration and to see what those numbers do for their sense of fealty to him. Yeah. It's hard for me to see that um, the cycle is a referendum on that type of power while campaign finance policies are still in place. I mean, that has to be dismantled before I think money is divorced from Politics. No, I, I know. I think I think right now, if there's anything that this election has taught us, is that Americans are addicted to spectacle and they prefer it to <laughs> substance. So I think we'll see more spectacle rather than less. But maybe that's just because I'm a little um, <laughs> disgusted by the pageantry of the 900 people running for the Democratic nominee. Um, you know, I I don't know, but I, the spectacle will increase. But I'm hoping that. The fissures that the Trump administration is, is, I suppose, highlighting in American culture will force a fundamental change. And I think that watching the members of the House, the junior members, especially Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar, stand up and create different discursive power structures and using the bully pulpit from the 
um, legislative branch. That is actually, I think, creating different models. I also think that, I mean, Bernie Sanders, love him or hate him, I feel both ways, uh, his class critiques have enabled a tremendous shift in public discourse around power and loyalty and nationalism and patriotism and social, you know, obligation that um, I think will continue to percolate within the Democratic Party, even though I doubt that he will be the nominee. Bernie Sanders is a good example of the person providing critique who is just castigated as the complainer. Also, he has a bunch of problems, so I'm not trying to minimize, you know, some of the critiques of him personally, and certainly I've made many of them in print and on this podcast, but uh, I do think that he is a good example of somebody who has been doing the same structural critique for 40 years and is constantly shunted aside as the complainer, but his ideas have 100% influenced the conversation in this presidential election, as well as the makeup of the campaigns for the last legislative cycle. And for that, I think he should be commended. So I'm not saying you should be loyal to him at all. I'm just saying that he understood what he was giving up to build the momentum for that critique and to support workers' rights in ways that I think the party structure as a whole has not understood because they wanted loyalty rather than transformation. Mm -hmm. 